Good morning. It's a little different today. I'm joining you by video because Leanne and I are out of town. We're attending uh, the funeral for her grandmother. It's actually tomorrow. She passed away last week and uh, she was a great lady. She had a full life, lived to be 99, had nine children and Leanne counted up I think 117 descendants of hers directly. So she had a huge family. Church was super important to her. Pastor's daughter, pastor's wife, pastor's mom. Just really important for her. She was a great lady. We're going to miss her, but we want to celebrate her life tomorrow. So today, I had already written this message, and I wanted to share it with you. It was important to me to share this message with you because it's such a vital question that we're dealing with. And so today, we continue in this series that I'm calling Real Life. And we're thinking about having a meaningful life. And we've talked about the fact and sort of used as our main operating principle that a real life, a meaningful life, starts with Jesus. That's where we have to begin to live this meaningful life. And so today, I want us to continue dealing with those questions and think about what really matters. Now, I'm from the South, and what really matters in the South is college football. I know in Central Illinois, you have to choose, am I a Cubs fan or am I a Cards fan? But in the South, there's really only one major league team. We're all Braves fans. Yes, I know there are a couple of teams in that state to the south, but I can tell you that doesn't really count. So everybody's a Braves fan, but you really pledge your allegiance by which NCAA football team you follow and you root for. And as for me and my house, we believe the best football is played in Sanford Stadium in Athens, Georgia, with this little guy always present. That's Ugga. We're University of Georgia fans and we don't want to have anything to do with people who do some kind of gator chomp or can't figure out if their team is the War Eagles or the Tigers or their volunteers or we follow the University of Georgia. Now I can remember in one of the other churches I served one of the elders was a huge Georgia fan. We lived in Savannah and Savannah has a lot of fans of the University of Georgia, but he got so frustrated with Georgia losing the big games that he bought himself a maroon hat with a little A on the top and he started yelling roll tide. Now in my mind, you don't switch allegiance like that. You don't change teams midstream, but you know, here's the thing as followers of Jesus, what we're trying to do is to tell people you need to switch your allegiance. You need to change how your life is oriented, what really matters to you. And part of what we're saying is that what matters the most is Jesus Christ. So how do we help people understand why they should follow Jesus Christ? How do we help people understand that this is the most important thing? Today, as we continue the series, I want to answer that question. And we're going to look at another story that we find in the Gospel of John. We've been studying the Gospel of John and, and hearing these stories. And today we come to another story that's recorded only in John. It doesn't appear in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. John gives us this story, and I think it's key for us understanding why we should follow Jesus. We find the story in John chapter 11. Jesus has been in Jerusalem for the, the festival that we call Hanukkah. And things had gotten a little unsettled there, and there was lots of opposition. In fact, the religious leaders were so threatened by Jesus that they picked up stones to stone him to death. And Jesus escapes from that, goes across the Jordan River to the area where John the Baptist had been preaching early in his ministry, where John got his name, the Baptist, because he was baptizing in the River Jordan. 
And Jesus stays there. A crowd sort of follows him. He has been sort of pushed away, and yet he continues to teach. He's under threat and still preaches the message that would lead to salvation. So that's where we pick up at the beginning of John chapter 11, and this is what we read in John 11, verse 1. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And now it turns out that Mary and Martha are Lazarus' sisters. And when we hear the word Lazarus, the name Lazarus, what immediately comes to mind is one thing. In fact, it's all over the culture. There's a movie called The Lazarus Effect that's all about people being sort of coming back to life. So we know the end of the story, but but what really matters is how we get there. And that's what I want us to think today. How do we get from this point of Lazarus being sick to the end of the story? Now, what we know is that Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, send for Jesus. They know Jesus' power. They have witnessed Jesus. They've heard of the signs. They've seen some of them probably that Jesus had performed. And we remember a couple weeks ago, I talked about the signs that Jesus performed, the, the six signs that we had gotten to that began with Jesus turning water to wine at the wedding in Cana and continued in healing and feeding 5,000, walking on water. And then sign number six was giving sight to a man who was born blind. And as people read the Gospel of John, they would have counted those signs and gotten to number six, and they would have expected seven, the number of completion. And they would have wondered, okay, what, what is greater than giving sight to the blind? Well, this is the rest of that story. Mary and Martha knew of those signs, and so they sent for Jesus. Now, I have to think about this. They're in Bethany. Jesus is across the Jordan. It's a day's journey from where they were to where Jesus was. And when Jesus gets that message, this is what he says. Verse 4, when he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be, may be glorified through it. Now, if you were with us a couple weeks ago, that should ring a bell because it sounds a lot like what Jesus said when, when he healed the blind man, that well, this is all about God's glory because everyone said, what did he do wrong? What did his parents do wrong? And Jesus said, no, that's not the issue. The issue is how can this be used for God's glory? So here again, we have Lazarus who is sick and Jesus says, listen, there's things to come. And this story is going to end up with God being glorified. We continue to verse 5. Now Jesus loved Mary, um, Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Okay, he, he loves them. But then verse 6. So when he heard Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. Well, that seems a little strange, doesn't it? Jesus loves them, his close friends who live in Bethany, so much that he just stays right where he is. Now, that seems a little surprising. We would expect Jesus to just pick everything up and go. Now, we do know that Jesus was under threat. We know that he could have been arrested and killed. And going back to Judea was a pretty dangerous proposition. Mary and Martha must have known that when they sent for Jesus. But Jesus just stays there. And then finally, after those two days, he prepares to leave. His disciples sort of say, Jesus, hang on here. 
Are you sure this is the wise thing to do? And Jesus says, well, Lazarus is asleep. Listen to verse 14. They're confused about that. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Jesus doesn't want any confusion when he sets out. He says it as plainly as possible. Lazarus is dead. But he's glad he wasn't there. Something amazing is about to happen. And then a verse, verse 16. The disciples have been worried about Jesus and worried about him going back. And, and Thomas speaks. And this is a verse that, and until I studied for this lesson, I don't know that I'd ever really paid attention to. Thomas is known as a doubter, questioning the resurrection. But this is what he says in John eleven sixteen. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, which just means twin, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Here's a man that, I mean, we call him Doubting Thomas. And we forget in this moment that Thomas is ready to go and die with Jesus, to do whatever it takes to be a follower of Jesus. So they set out. And now let's get the math straight again. One day for the, the servant, the messenger, to get to Jesus. Jesus waits two days, one day to get back. So Four days, Jesus arrives in Bethany, the town where Lazarus and his sisters lived. And as soon as he gets there, sort of at the city gates, we find out that Lazarus is already dead. In fact, Lazarus has been dead for four days. It seems to me that by the time Jesus even got the message that Lazarus was sick, he was probably already dead. And remember, in that day and time, burial was immediate. You, you died and you were buried immediately, just like Jesus was buried the day that he died. And we find out that, that Martha hears that Jesus is there and she runs out of the house, runs through the city to Jesus. And man, she is not going to cut him any slack. Verse 21, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You can't get any plainer than that. If you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. And maybe she knows that by the time Jesus heard the message, Lazarus was already dead. But in her mind, Jesus, Jesus is more powerful than that. Could he not have been there? Could he not have solved this problem? Verse 22. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Now that's faith. I think we have a tendency, since we know what's going to happen next, to think that Martha is saying, Lazarus is dead, but I have faith that you can raise him from the dead. I think if you read the rest of the story, it's not that clear. I think that, that Martha is saying this, if you had been here, Lazarus would be alive now. But even though you didn't come, I'm still following you. I'm still with you. And then Jesus go on, goes on and he says, hey, Martha, your brother is going to rise again. And she says, I know, I know. She was like most Jews in the first century. Not all, but most believed that, that at the end of the world, people were going to be raised from the dead. Those that followed God were going to be raised from the dead. And she's like, yes, I know he's going to be raised from the dead like everybody else who follows God. And, and then Jesus pauses and he says these words. Now, 
Remember, we talked about the seven signs a couple weeks ago. We also talked about seven I am statements where Jesus sets out something important about who he is and uses this phrase, I am the, sort of hearkening back to the Old Testament name for God, which was I am. This is what Jesus says in verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Now, there's a lot packed in those two verses. First is Jesus saying, I am the resurrection and the life. It's not that resurrection is a theological construct. It's not that it's an idea out there. Jesus is saying resurrection is a person and it is me. I am life. And that goes back to John reminding us at the beginning of the gospel and all the way through the gospel that Jesus was present at the creation of life. And now John points forward and he helps us see what Jesus is saying here is that when you think about resurrection being raised from the dead, it is embodied in Jesus. And then Jesus closes that with Martha. Do you believe that? Do you believe I'm the resurrection? Here's what she says. Verse 27. Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that. But she goes on. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Now, think about that. If you've been with us again over the last few weeks, that should remind you of how we've looked at the end of the gospel first. And John tells us at the end of chapter 20, listen, I, I want my readers to know two things, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And here, right in the middle of the gospel, again, as we've seen before, a woman, someone that couldn't testify in court, someone that might be ignored by most of the culture, at least those in power, is the one to say, I believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus just asked, do you believe I'm the resurrection and the life? She says yes, and then takes it further, and she helps us see who Jesus really is, the one that fulfills prophecy, the one who shows himself by his power to be the Son of God, the one who, who is the resurrection and the life, and because of that shows that he is God himself because no one else can do that. Well, now Mary enters the picture. She's not come to the, the city gates, but now she comes and kneels at Jesus' feet. And she says basically the same thing that Martha said. Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then we have this next section that reveals Jesus' emotion about all of this. Verse 33 says, when Jesus saw her weeping, and this is Mary at this point, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, there's a big crowd that's come and they're grieving with Mary and Martha, probably brought casseroles, right? To, to be with them, take care of them. They're all weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Now, that's an interesting phrase, deeply moved in spirit. It could be translated a couple different ways. Lots of the translations are basically here, but it could also be translated that Jesus was angry in spirit and distressed. In fact, that's a more literal translation. So 
what would Jesus be angry about at this point? How could Jesus be angry? Is it that they don't see what he could do? Is it that and he's just angry at death? You know, I think there's, there's a lot of emotion that, that surrounds death, especially of someone we love. But it's true even in a larger sense that we get angry that death happens to people. I mean, if, if you've been in a room where someone dies, it brings out a tremendous sense of sadness and grief in you, even if you're not close to that person. There's a ton of emotion surrounding death. And, and this verse shows us that Jesus felt that emotion. Now, Jesus asks at that point where, where they buried Lazarus. He wants to go to the tomb and they take him there. It's a cave with a stone rolled in front. That should remind us of something, right? We're pointing forward to Jesus' death, which is not that far away. And we read this in verse 35. When Jesus sees this place where Lazarus is buried, Jesus wept, verse 35. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Jesus' raw emotion is present in this moment when he comes to the place where Lazarus is buried and he weeps. Now, we know what's about to happen. I think Jesus knew of what was about to happen. Why was he crying? Well, again, I think it's the power of death. And I think it's the emotion of his friends, these people who are weeping over the death of someone that they loved. Jesus is grieving with them. Jesus had emotions just like we do. And this is very powerful in this moment. And then at that moment, Jesus says, roll away the stone. And what we have to remember is, in the ancient world, after four days, it was assumed that the spirit had departed that person completely. Four days have passed. Lazarus is dead. Jesus has said that. And Martha says, Jesus, we, we can't roll away the stone. There's going to be an odor. Well, She's just concerned about the, the practical part of this. Jesus wants to move forward with this. Verse 40, did I tell, not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God. Something amazing is about to happen. They are going to witness something that just didn't happen and doesn't happen now. Verse 43, when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. These were grave clothes. And Lazarus is alive. Now, what's interesting is, you know, when they rolled the stone away, nobody says, well, there's an odor. In fact, it's not mentioned. Maybe God's been at work in this story already, keeping Lazarus' body from decaying. I don't know how all that worked, but what I know is that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. This powerful climax to the story. There is new life. There is victory over death. Powerful. Jesus had said that they would see the glory of God, and they did. Now, what we know is that Jesus' return to Judea across the Jordan River was just as dangerous as people were afraid and that it wouldn't be long until Jesus was in a tomb just like Lazarus had been and the stone was rolled away and there was resurrection once again. But for us today, as we think about this passage, what do we learn? 
And this is what I want us to take away from this. And it's so important. And this is why I wanted to share this message with you. What Jesus did points to who Jesus was. What Jesus did points to who Jesus was. This was the seventh sign. We talked about how they sort of increased in awesomeness, right? Water to wine, well, that's impressive, but bringing somebody back to life, that's another whole thing, right? Jesus could raise someone from the dead. Now, John tells us that the reason he records all this is so that we would believe, just as Martha said, that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. This story is designed to convince us of that. This story is designed to let us know who Jesus was. And we might say, well, I don't know about that. I mean, in the ancient world, didn't they believe lots of people could be raised from the dead? Weren't they expecting miracles? I don't think so. I don't think that works. I don't think Martha was expecting Jesus to raise, uh, Jesus to raise her brother from the dead. I don't think anyone was. In fact, we look through the story, no one's sort of saying, hey, Jesus, why don't you go over to that tomb and, and raise up Lazarus? It wasn't expected then. It's not expected now. And yet it happened. And it's part of this, this mounting evidence that points exactly to where John is going. That Jesus really is the Messiah, the Son of God. People are not raised from the dead now, and they were not raised from the dead then. But Jesus did it because he had the power of God at work in him, because he was God. What Jesus did points to who he was. And the fact that these people became part of the, the community of followers, the community of faith that became the church early on, helps me see that, that this really did happen. It confirms the accuracy of what John tells us here. Now, it's not all the evidence we have. Man, this is powerful evidence to me that it happened even though people didn't expect it. John records this. No one says, ah, that didn't happen. And people began to gather around Jesus after this. And then it's confirmed when Jesus himself is raised from the dead, that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. And so it leaves us with a choice. Am I going to reorient my life? Am I going to change the way my life works? Because Jesus is and was and will be the Messiah, the Son of God. That decision changes the course of our lives. It changes how we live life and how we spend eternity. And so we're left with a decision. Will I believe that Jesus really is the Messiah, the Son of God? Let's pray together. God, we're thankful for this story that points us in the direction of who Jesus was. And it's because of what he did. Thanks for all these signs that help us to see that he is the Messiah and your son. God, help us to share that message with the people around us. Now we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.